All right, well, thank you for being here, and if this is your first Sunday night here, we appreciate your, your coming, or maybe last week, you know, you're at the beach, and that you've been writing lately, or when you think of those chapters that have closed a long time ago, but it's still hard for you to, to forget them, what does God see when He looks at your life? Well, to help you understand that, I want you to go with me, not to 1 Corinthians, which is where we were uh, last week, and we'll get back to that. But I want you to go, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 4. I just want to lay a foundation of, of what God sees. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I want you to go to verse 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Somebody read that verse out loud for us. Who will read Hebrews 4.13? Read it good and loud. Alright, so if you were just to use that verse and answer this question, what does God see, how would you answer that question? Everything. God sees, God knows everything. If you want a little bit more of a support for that concept, go to Psalm 139. Some of you know this psalm. You already know where you, you've memorized parts of it or read it so much you know what it's going to say. But Psalm 139, we'll just look at the first four verses. Psalm 139. David, the psalmist, wrote this, and he says, O Lord, you have searched me. And you know me. Now, you could just stop right there for a moment. You have searched me and you know me. That is, you know everything about me. Then he goes on to explain that. You know when I sit and when I rise. God, you know, you know my activity. When I sit down, you know where I'm sitting. When I stand up, you know, you know about that too. You perceive my thoughts from afar. God, you, you not only know my activity, but you know what I'm thinking. God knows what you're thinking right now. God knows what you were thinking when you came in the door. God knows what you were thinking last night. David says, God, you know me. You know my activity. You know my thoughts. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. In fact, God not only knows all of your ways, he says, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. So again, if I were to ask you the question, what does God see, how would you answer that question based on, on Psalm 139? Everything. God sees everything. He knows everything. But the question is not so much what does God know. Here, You see, there's a difference between some, in some ways, between what God knows and what God sees. What does God know? God knows everything. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about your past. He knows everything about your present. He knows everything about your future. He knows the very thoughts in your mind before you think them. God knows. But that's not the question. The question is, when God looks at you, what does God see? Hmm. What he sees in your life is not necessarily what you see. 
What you see in, when you look in the mirror is not necessarily what God sees when he looks at you. Now, we're going to go back to our text that we were at last week. And again, I'm just going to review for a few minutes for the sake of those who weren't here last week. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me remind you that this letter was written to a church that was located in the city of Corinth, which was a major cosmopolitan city. Do you remember last week what U.S. city I compared Corinth to? Anybody remember that? New York. Corinth was a lot like New York. It was a major city in its day, a cosmopolitan city, a, a, port, a seaport city, a major trading center of its day. Uh, but Corinth was also a polluted city. Now, you've got to hear this. Corinth, the city of Corinth, was filled with all kinds of vice and perversion and worldly pleasure. It was kind of a combination between New York City and Las Vegas. If you could take those two cities and, and put them together, that's a pretty good description of Corinth. In fact, the lowest accusation that you could make towards a person, if you really wanted to cuss somebody out, the lowest thing you could, you could call a person was a Corinthian. If you called someone a Corinthian... You were calling them the lowest of low, the scum of all scum. You were talking about their morals and their values, and you were accusing them of vile, perverted things if you called them a Corinthian. Now, guess where Paul started a church? He started the church where the gospel was most needed, in Corinth. The city of Corinth, the polluted, perverted city of Corinth. On his second missionary journey around AD 50, uh, Acts 18 tells us that Paul was actually in the city of Corinth uh, for 18 months, one of the longest stays of his, of his ministry. He stayed in the city of Corinth for 18 months because they so desperately needed to be uh, discipled and pastored. Now, about five years later, after he started this church and he goes on other missionary journeys, he leaves, he leaves the church with the pastor and, and he goes on. About five years later, Paul gets word that the city he planted in Corinth I'm sorry, the church he planted in Corinth was in trouble. I don't mean just a little trouble. I mean serious trouble. The members of the church had permitted the sins of the city to permeate their church. Now, folks, this, this was a church unlike any you probably have ever seen. It was evil. It was, there was division. They, they, they had given in to sensuality. This was an an incredibly, what's the word? Um, it's not malfunctioning. I can't think of the word right now. But th this was a church that, that was not looking like, functioning like a really a church at all. Have you ever had anybody, when you talk to them about coming to faith in Christ, have you ever had anybody say, well, I'll tell you what, I'd be a Christian if it weren't for all the hypocrites in the church. You ever heard that? You know why people say that? Because they're hypocrites in the church. But, but you know, what, what I want to say to you is just come on because we can always use another one. <laughs> Joke. I'm joking, okay? I'm joking. I'm joking. But if you wanted to say that about the church at Corinth, you would be right to say that church is full of hypocrites. You'd be exactly right. In fact, let me just show you some examples. I'm just, just going to give you the scripture. I'm going to ask you to read it. I want you to tell me what the problem is, what's happening in, in this church. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 13 
chapter 1, verse 10 through 13. Somebody read that. You can read it out loud or you can read... Somebody read it out loud. Chapter 1, verse 10 through 13. All right, so what's the problem going on in the church at Corinth right here? Division. Have you ever heard of a divided church? Have you ever seen a church fight, church split? Well, that was Corinth, all right? Corinth was, was a divided church. They, they, they had all kinds of division in the church, but that's not all they had. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as, what's that next word? Worldly. He said, you're a worldly bunch of people. Mere infants in Christ. Now, he didn't say they weren't saved, but he said, boy, you sure don't look like you're saved because you're mere infants in Christ. He said, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. Even at this very time when I'm writing this letter, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. Verse 3. You are still worldly. Since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Paul says, listen... Church, this is the worst place I've ever seen. I mean, you, you're a bunch of worldly people. You, you, jealousy and quarreling has permeated the fellowship. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 18. Some of you have become, what's that next word? Some of you have become what? Arrogant. So, so let's, let's keep track. Here's a divided church, a worldly church, an arrogant church, and it gets worse. Chapter 5. Somebody read verses 1 and 2. Chapter 5, somebody read verses 1 and 2. You don't want to read it, I understand. It's embarrassing. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. That is, you guys are living worse than pagans do. Here's what he says. A man has his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? This is a divided church. This is a worldly church. This is an arrogant church. It's a sexually perverted church. I mean, folks, it doesn't even seem like a church at all. Chapter 6, that's what he's talking about. Verse 1, if any of you has a dispute with, with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world... Uh, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Now, I don't know what all that's about, so don't ask me later, okay? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes amongst, about such matters, remember this is a divided church, now they've got disputes, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one beloved, one believe, try it again. Instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. So what's happening here? What's the problem here? Come on, talk to me. Yeah, well, yeah, they're fighting outside the church and they're suing one another. 
So this is not only a divided church, this is a church where the Christians are suing other Christians. And we could go on and on and on and on. Uh, let me just give you one more reference. Chapter, since we're in chapter 6, verse 15, he says this. This will blow your mind. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Paul says, listen, I've heard what's, what's going on there. I know what some of you are doing. Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. For he who unites himself with the Lord is one with, with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. So, so this is a divided church and a sexually immoral church. And the list could go on and on and on. And, and I showed you all of that last week. And the reason I'm making such a big deal about this is because when you understand how bad this church is, it is mind-boggling how Paul begins the letter. Look how he begins the letter. To these people that he was writing to who, who, who were all of these things we just talked about. Chapter 1, verse 1, and following, look what he says. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 4, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Doesn't that sound like two different churches? Am I the only one when I read verses 1 through 9? It's like, who's he talking about? Or if you read verses 1 through 9, then you start to reading the rest of the letter. It's like, how do you explain this? How do you explain that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, he's talking to this church that is holy and righteous and blameless, and then beginning in verse 10 and for the rest of the book, he's talking about this church that is divided and perverted and struggling and, and suing one another. and all. How do you explain that? When I told you last week, I said one commentator says in verses 1 through 9, Paul describes the church that God sees, and in verse, verse 10 and following through the rest of the book, he describes the church that men see. Can we be honest for a moment? For most of us, there's a great difference between our position in Christ and our practice in daily life. Can I just be, maybe put it to you this way? For most of us, we don't always live as well as we preach. We don't always live as well as we teach. Maybe I could explain it to you this way. See if you agree with this. 
Christians don't always act like Christians. Would you agree with that? So, it brings me back to this original question. And now we're, we've called up. Here's the original question. When God looks at your life, what does he see? Well, I want to outline two aspects of our position in Christ and how God sees us. First of all, you need to understand this, number one. Our position in Christ is our greatest security. You see, when God looks at us, He sees our position in Christ. That's verses 1 through 9. He sees our position in Christ rather than our practice in daily life. Now, He knows about our practice in daily life. He'll deal with us regarding our practice in daily life. But, but God looks at us, and I'll explain this later, God looks at us regarding our position in Christ. So here's what I want you to understand. Our position in Christ is our greatest security. You know, if you and I were to just take chapter 1, I'm not going to do this, everybody watch this. If we were to take chapter 1 and just rip it out of, out of our Bible, all right, just take chapter 1 and rip it out of our Bible, so we didn't know about verses 1 through 9. And then we were to read the rest of 1 Corinthians, we would read that that letter and say, these people aren't saved. These people don't look like Christians. They don't act like Christians. These people aren't saved. They've never been born again. But Paul knew better. And the reason he knew better is because he was there when it happened. He was there when he introduced them to Jesus. And in fact, he refers to this. Look in chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God in, in Corinth, to those, what's that next word? Sanctified. The Greek, the Greek word is perfect passive participle. It means to make or declare holy. I'd write that down if I were you. Sanctified means to make or declare holy. It doesn't mean you are holy. It means that you were made holy. You were declared holy. Paul knew that salvation does not depend on works but on grace. It doesn't depend on on our behavior, it depends on God's love. It doesn't depend on our, uh, our good works. It depends on God's grace. We're sanctified. We're declared holy in Jesus Christ. But notice what Paul says in verse 4. He does not say, I thank God for your faithfulness and your good behavior. He does not say, I thank God that you're such nice, good people. Paul couldn't do that, could he? Because they weren't faithful. They weren't very good many times. What does he say in verse 4? I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. Man, I love that. That was their security. Ladies and gentlemen, that is our security as well. His grace given to us in Christ Jesus. You see, if these Corinthians were to be saved by their own goodness or their own conduct or their own behavior, there would be no hope for them at all. And that is true for all of us. That is true for every single believer. If we were to be saved by our goodness, by our conduct, by our good behavior, none of us would be able to experience salvation. But I want you to get ready to underline four words here. His grace 
given you. That ought to be underlined, highlighted, circled, somehow marked in your Bible. His grace given you. Now, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. It does not say His grace that you earned. It does not say His grace that that you somehow obtained. It was given to them. You You know this probably, but the word grace can be translated undeserved, unrepayable kindness or mercy given to sinners. Undeserved, unrepayable mercy given to sinners. And if you read verses 4 through 9 carefully, you'll see that everything centers around God's goodness to the church rather than the church's goodness. Oh, no, that's somebody, somebody needs to hear that. Verses 4 through 9 in, in chapter 1 centers around God's goodness to the church rather than the church's goodness. Look at the text, beginning chapter 1, beginning verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched every way. In all your speaking, all your knowledge, because of our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with His Son Jesus Christ is faithful. It didn't say they were faithful. It says God is faithful. In fact, Paul was being honest. They were not faithful at all. This is important. Grace is about God's goodness, not about our goodness. The actions and the conduct of the church members in Corinth was a stench. It was a contradiction. It was a reproach upon the testimony of Christ. But God knew that before He saved them, didn't He? God knew before He saved them what a failure they would be. He knew before He saved them what a failure they would be after they were saved. So why did He save them? Why did He save this group of people who were so struggling in the church at Corinth? Why did He save these people if He knew they would struggle like this? Why? Only one answer. Grace. Grace. You see, when, you, when it comes right down to it, why did He save any of us? It's grace. It's not because of our goodness. It's not because we get, we get the perfect citizenship award in church every year. No. Isaiah says our righteousness is like filthy rags in His eyes. That the best that we do is, is like filthy rags in God's eyes. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, but that's an encouragement to me. God knew before He saved us that we would sometimes be disobedient. God knew before He saved us that we would sometimes be faithless. God knew before He saved us what a mess we would sometimes make of our lives. But in His grace, He saved us anyway. That's grace. And that's the church at Corinth. Church of Corinth was a messed up group of people. And if you and I were to sit in judgment over them, we would say, man, those people need to get saved. And Paul says in chapter 1, verse 2, no, they've been saved. They were sanctified, declared holy by God. Verse 
See, I wrote this down on my notes. I'm just going to have to read it to you to make sure I get it right. We are saved because God wanted us saved, and we stay saved because God does not change his mind about us. That, my friends, is security. What does God see when he looks at you? You know what God sees? God sees his grace on display. Don't miss that. God sees his grace on display. God looks at you through the eyes of grace. And if he called us when we were lost and when we were wretched, surely he will not cease to be faithful to us when we struggle. And isn't that what Romans 5 is all about? Go to Romans 5.10. Look at Romans 5.10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, now, now notice the, the direction here. It says we were God's enemies. It never says that God is our enemy, but it always says that we are God's enemy. And that simply means that we're not living under the submission of God. We're living our own life separated from God. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Having fellowship with the Son, His life in us. Listen, Paul's argument was simply this. Listen, if God saved you when you were a sinner, He's not going to kick you out of the family because you're a sinner. Does that make sense to anybody? Now this is where people start saying, whoa, 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 time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. Pastor, are you saying that it doesn't matter how we live? Are, are you saying that, that because of God's grace we can just... We can just be a perverted church, a divided church, and a, all those kind of things, and it won't matter. Now, here's the second point I want you to get. Write this down. Not only is our position in Christ our greatest encouragement or our greatest uh, strength and, and all that, but secondly, number two, our position in Christ is our greatest rebuke. Our position in Christ is our greatest rebuke. It's interesting to me how Paul starts out this letter to the carnal church. I didn't say the Corinthian church, I said the carnal church, because that's what they were. It's interesting how he starts his letter out to this carnal church. Paul doesn't, now listen, when he writes the letter, get this, get this in your mind, when he starts the letter, do you think he knew about all those problems before he started writing the letter? Absolutely, of course he did. So when he starts writing the letter, he doesn't start out by threatening them. When he, when he starts the letter, he doesn't start out by trying to shame them. He doesn't start the letter by trying to scare them into obedience. Instead of reprimanding the church, he opens the letter by reminding them of their position in Christ. And he reminds them of God's faithfulness and God's grace that made their salvation possible. Look at the text. It's just... Just, I want you to get ready to circle some words here as we go through the text. To the church of God in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 2. To those sanctified, I would mark that, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be holy. 
I would mark that. To all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because His grace given to you, you've already marked that one in Christ Jesus. For in Him, in Him you have been enriched in every way. And all your speaking, all your knowledge, because of our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not like any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end. He will. He will. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless. I would mark that one. Blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. So definitely underline and mark that. You know what Paul's doing as he starts this letter? He's saying, church... Look at who you are. Look at what you have. Look at how good and how faithful God has been to you. And only then does he begin to talk about how they ought to live. You see, we've read the first nine verses. There's a verse 10. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers... These are Christians. Paul knew that. They're fellow Christians. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so there be no divisions among you, so that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So, so it's only after he tells, us, tells them who they are in Christ and all that God has done for them and how God has been faithful to them, only then does he say, now this is how you ought to live. Paul makes the fact that God's still holding on to them the basis for calling them to repentance. Now, let me put it to you this way. Everybody, everybody listen to this. As Christians, one of the strongest rebukes we can have when we sin, as Christians, one of the strongest rebukes we can have when we sin is to be reminded who our Father is and what our Father has done. That rebuke, reminding you of who your father is and what your father has done for you, is so much more effective, so much more powerful than shame on you. You shouldn't have done that. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't shame people. You don't shame people back into a relationship with God. You know what draws people back into a relationship with God? It's when they begin to see the beauty of God's grace. When they begin to see how God loves them regardless, how God reached out to them when they were sinners, and how God still holds on to them regardless. You see, God saves you by grace, and He keeps you by grace. But, that does not give you an excuse for living in sin. In fact, it's the very opposite. God's faithfulness and God's grace to you should cause you to want to live for Him. God's grace to you should cause you to want to live for Him. That's Paul's argument in Romans 6. Go back to that real quickly. Romans chapter 6. Look in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. 
but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. I said, listen, listen, being under grace doesn't mean that you just have a free pass to live any way you want to. Being under grace is your motivation to live for Him. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Or as the King James says, God forbid. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, So now, offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. And the motivation for that, Paul says, is God's grace expressed to you. You see, the highest motivation for living for God is His love for us. The Corinthians were far from blameless. They were far from perfect in their conduct. They were carnal, they were wicked, they were worldly. But Paul's argument, Paul's plea to the Corinthians was to repent and return back to God, return from their sinful ways because God is faithful. So, got a few minutes here. I want to bring it to a close. There's a story Evie Hill tells. I don't know if you know Evie Hill. Great, great African-American preacher. I'm not sure if he's still alive now, but man, I've heard him preach personally, and he's just such a powerful, powerful preacher and man of God. Someone called Evie Hill's house one night, this great, well-known pastor. Someone called his house one night and said that there was a bomb planted in his car. He wasn't sure if it was a prank or if it was real. He didn't know. They didn't know what to do about it, but the next morning, his wife When he woke up, his wife was gone. He looked out the kitchen window. When he looked out the kitchen window looking for her, he he saw her pulling up into their driveway in his car. For the next six weeks after that, she'd get up every morning before he did and start his car. E.V. Hill, and I, I was there when he told this story. He says, after that, I never again had to ask if my wife loved me. Satan has wired your life to blow up. But long before you were ever born, Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins. Every sin you've ever committed, He knew in advance what they would be. He died for every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. And since the cross of Calvary, you don't ever have to question again if God loves you. Pastor, what about that chapter in my life? God still loves you. Well, Pastor, what about what I've done or what I'm called up in or what I'm. God still loves you. He is faithful to you. And His grace means that He saved you not based on your conduct based on His grace 
His love, His mercy. Listen, if we can ever get that thought in our minds, it's His grace, it's His love, it's His mercy. It's not our performance. His grace, His love, His mercy. And that won't motivate you to live recklessly. That will motivate you to live righteously. When you understand the price of grace, when you understand that God is faithful to you even when you're not faithful to Him, then all of a sudden you become motivated to say, I don't need this anymore. I don't want that ever again. I will close that chapter of my life because I am loved by God's grace. And you won't be perfect. And you won't get it perfect. And we'll be the church of the hypocrites in some ways, won't we? But we'll be the church that is loved by a faithful God. I want to tell you something. God loves the hypocrites. He don't want you to be a hypocrite. He doesn't want you to live a hypocritical life. He wants you to live a faithful life. My point is simply this. When you're not faithful, He is. And that's grace. Now, before I let you leave, I'm going to try to read this to you. If I can get through it. Joe Greenberg, after last week, sent me a text. He said, you need to listen to Matthew West's song called Mended. Started to play it for you to end the service, but... When I read the words, they were just so powerful. I thought, I'm just going to read you the words. I also looked up online and I found out that this song was was motivated by a story that Matthew West received in the mail. He gets all kinds of stories. He kind of collects stories of of people telling their story of what their life and everything. And he said, there's one theme that runs through the stories. And the theme is that time that I messed up, that that chapter of my life I regret, that struggle that I have. He said, there seems to be this theme that runs through these thousands of stories. He said, but one in particular stood out to me. He said, it was the story of this young woman who was sexually abused for years. And she wrote to him about her story. And and he says, so I wrote this song that was motivated by her story. He says, when you see broken beyond repair... I see healing beyond belief. When you see too far gone, I see one step away from home. How many times can one heart break? It was never supposed to be this way. Look in the mirror, but you'll find someone you never thought you'd be. Oh, but I can still recognize the one I love in your tear-stained eyes. I know you might not see him now, so lift your eyes to me. When you see broken beyond repair, God says, I see healing beyond belief. When you see too far gone, I see one step away from home. When you see nothing but damaged goods, I see something good in the making. I'm not finished yet. When you see wounded, I see mended. You see your worst mistake. You see your worst mistake. But I see the price I paid. And there's nothing you could do to lose what grace has won. I love that phrase. There's nothing you can do to lose what grace has won. So hold on, it's not the end. No, this is where love's work begins. I'm making all things new, and I'll make a miracle of you. When you see broken beyond repair, I see healing beyond belief. 
when you see too far gone, I see one step away from home. When you see nothing but damaged goods, I see something good in the making. I'm not finished yet. When you see wounded, I see mended. I see, my child, my beloved, the new creation you're becoming. You see the scars from when you fell. But I see the stories they will tell. You see worthless. I see priceless. You see pain. I see purpose. You see unworthy. Undeserving. But I see you through the eyes of mercy. When you see broken beyond repair, I see healing beyond belief. You're not too far gone. You're one step away from home. When you see nothing but damaged goods, I see something good in the making. I'm not finished yet. No, when you see wounded, I see mended. What does God see? When God looks at your life. When you look in the mirror, you see a failure. When you look in the mirror, you see your struggles. When you look in the mirror, you see wounded. But God looks at you through the eyes of grace. And when God looks at you, God sees mended. Not by your goodness. Not by your efforts. But by His grace. He sees. His child. When you look at the second half of Corinthians. You see these people who are messed up. But when you look at the first nine verses of Corinthians. You see God's church. When God looks at you, here's what He sees. If you know Jesus as your Savior, here's what He sees. He sees His child. And He always, always, always looks at you through the eyes of grace. And that should not motivate you to live recklessly. That should motivate you to live faithfully. Thank you, dear God. That regardless of the messes that we've made, regardless of how wounded and worthless we feel, if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, you look at us through the eyes of grace. And before you saved us, you knew the messes we would make. Before you saved us, you knew the struggles we would have. Before you saved us, you knew the issues we would struggle with. And yet, you saved us anyway. And we are so grateful that this salvation is not based on our goodness. But it's based on your grace. I guess that's why the writer called it amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Thank you for reminding us tonight, and may you continue to remind us this week what you see when you look at us.
We look in the mirror and we see what we've done. But you look at us and you look at what you've done through Jesus. And it's in his name we thank you. Amen.